worship team for leading us in that song. It's one of my favorites. And I want to add my, my welcome to Kevin's. It is great to be here with you all, to worship with you as every Sunday, and it's a great privilege to get to share the word with you this morning. If you have a copy of God's word, we'll be looking at Matthew chapter 12 this morning. And I believe you can find that on page 817 in your pew Bible. But we are delighted that you're here. We do have a few announcements as you're finding your way over to Matthew 12. Um, If you attend the Smitherman Growth Groups on Wednesday night, that is going to be relocating to Gary Tate's house this week, uh, just for this week. And so you should get an email about that this week. We'll make sure we include the address in that email so you can find his home. Uh, But that is a broader invitation to you as well. If you are relatively new to the church... Any questions that we have from Sunday mornings from the sermon, that's a great avenue to ask those questions and to gain more insight is by coming to one of those growth groups. So if you're looking for a way to get more plugged in, that would be the next step we would encourage you towards. So you can ask me or Kevin about that after the service. Today, as we turn our attention to Matthew 12, you need to know that it's been a while since I've gotten to preach, and so Kevin wanted to pitch me an easy passage uh, to get me back in the groove. So we're going to be talking about the unforgivable sin this morning. Matthew 12, 22 through 37. Hear God's word. It says, Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him. So that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts... He said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's go before him now and ask his help in understanding and applying it. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we come before you acknowledging our need. Uh, Lord, that we desperately need to see you clearly in your word, and we can only do that by the power of your spirit. And so, Lord, where there are calluses now, where ears have become hard of hearing, where eyes have become dull and dim, Lord, we pray that you would 
rescue us just as you rescued this demon-possessed man. Lord, bring us out of death into life, out of blindness into sight, out of being deaf into hearing. Would you do that this morning in our midst? We pray it in your name. Amen. So setting the stage here just to recap what's going on in this passage. Verse 22, Jesus heals a demon-possessed man. There's a man that's brought to him. The scripture says that he is both blind and deaf, or blind and unable to speak. And it doesn't say how Jesus heals him here, but just in an instant. This man goes from being a possession of Satan to being restored, healed both inwardly and outwardly. And the people's response to this in verse 23 is they are amazed, and it leads them to begin asking the question, can this be the son of David? So they're seeing something so different in Jesus here that the only question they can ask is, surely this, this might be the Messiah. Is this the son of David? And the Pharisees, whom Jesus has already been in an argument with, and we looked at the first part of that last week, motivated by envy, the Pharisees perceive what the people are asking, rumblings of this guy being the Messiah, and they wouldn't stand for that. And so verse 24, when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. They accused Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Satan. They see his power on display, and they're not able to deny what Jesus is doing anymore. It's so evident that what he is doing is genuine, that it's real, that the only tool they can grab in their tool bag at this point, the only argument left is not that the power isn't real, but they can deny its source. They can say, this man isn't from God, he's from Satan. And so this morning, we're going to structure our time around the five responses that Jesus gives to the Pharisees. And so the first thing that Jesus says, verses 25 and 26, first thing he says is their accusation is absurd. Jesus, verse 25, it says, knowing their thoughts, he said to them. I love this, that Jesus is fully aware of what these guys are thinking and whispering behind his back. And he addresses them publicly and directly. And knowing their thoughts, he said, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? The first thing Jesus says is that this argument makes no sense. He said, this is as foolish as like a football team wanting to win a game and they start tackling their own players. He said, no one trying to win is going to fight against their own mission. If I'm casting out demons by the power of Satan, then his kingdom is going to fall. So he says, this fails the first test. This is so illogical and elementary, it's absurd. The second thing he says is not only is their argument or their accusation absurd, but it's also hypocritical. Verse 27, he says, And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? And he says, I'll call on your sons to come and be judges in this. See, Jesus and his disciples were not the only ones that were claiming to cast out demons. Now, whether or not other people had been successful at this or not is pretty immaterial. What Jesus is pointing out here is that when the Pharisees and what he calls their sons, their followers, their disciples, when the disciples of the Pharisees were going out and claiming to cast out demons, 
the Pharisees had no problem with that, right? Because when they did it, the Pharisees, as their teachers, they got some clout from that. So their disciples, their sons who were going out and doing this, Think of like a hypocritical politician, right, that what they're doing is the best thing ever, but if their opponent tries to do it, it's the worst thing ever, right? Uh, It's the same thing here. Jesus points out their hypocrisy, and then he says, your sons can come and judge this dispute. You think about that. He says, why don't you bring your, your followers forward and let them decide if I'm casting out demons by the power of the Holy Spirit or by Satan. Why? Because if their followers admit that they cast out demons by the power of the Spirit, then they're having to admit that Jesus is doing the same. And they are embarrassing and shaming their own teachers. But on the flip side, if they say, no, Jesus is casting out demons by the power of Satan, then they are indicting themselves. She said, so let your sons come and judge between us on this. So it's absurd. It's also hypocritical. The third thing that Jesus says is not only that, but their accusation obscures what is actually happening. Verse 28, he said, But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The very fact that Jesus was able, with a word, with a command, to cast out demons should have been proof that the kingdom of Satan was vulnerable. Because at his command, Satan's minions were fleeing the hearts and lives of the people that they were tormenting. And Jesus says, it's not the devil's power at work, it's the power of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. And Jesus says, because of this, because it's by the Spirit of God that I do these things, it's proof that the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now, don't miss what Jesus is saying here. Sometimes when we think about the kingdom of God, or what Matthew often calls the kingdom of heaven, we think of that as being an entirely future thing. That is something that God is going to do one day, someday. But Jesus says that this kingdom is not just a future reality, but it is also a present reality. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 13, he compares the kingdom to yeast thrown into a lump of dough. I'm really hoping to get into bread making soon. I haven't started yet, but I have watched other people make bread on TikTok, so I feel like I'm qualified now. But you see this, right, that when you throw a little bit of yeast into a lump of dough, it's hidden. It's out of sight. But if you leave it alone and you come back after 12 hours, that dough has started to rise, right? It's multiplied in size. And Jesus said the kingdom of God is like this. It may seem small and insignificant, But it is a present reality and a powerful reality. And he's saying the kingdom of God is not only here, but he is implicitly saying that his kingdom is utterly opposed to the kingdom of darkness. That where his kingdom is present, the kingdom of Satan, the domain of darkness, begins to flee from it. Jesus says, because I have arrived... This kingdom is now here. It is a present reality that is breaking into your reality. Kingdom may be hidden. It may look obscure or small or insignificant, but it is at work. And it is a sign that Satan's days are numbered. Look at what Jesus says in verse 29 next. Jesus says, Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods? 
unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. You can probably look at this face and tell that I'm not an experienced burglar, but I do feel pretty confident about this, that there aren't many home robberies that happen where the bad guy breaks in and the homeowner starts helping them load stuff in the truck, right? That's absurd. And so any good burglar knows that if you're going to break into someone's house, you have to bind the owner of the house. And then while they're bound up in the corner watching helplessly, then you take their stuff. And Jesus says, this is exactly what I'm doing. Jesus says, by my words, my prayers, my miracles, I am kicking in the door of Satan's house, I am binding him, and I'm taking his furniture while he watches. This demon-possessed man that Jesus had just rescued, this man was the possession of Satan. His life had been bound by hands too strong for him. He could not free himself. He could not better his condition. There was nothing he could do. And friends, this is where we can begin to map our story onto the story of this man. Because his experience is our experience if we are now in Christ. You and I may not have the story of being rescued from demon possession. But we know exactly what it's like to be bound by hands too strong for us. We know exactly what it's like to be held captive by sin and unable to break its spell. We know exactly what it feels like to be spiritually dead and have Jesus come and snatch us out of the kingdom of darkness and transfer us into the kingdom of his son. Jesus says, and he makes it very clearly, that whatever authority Satan has on the earth, it is not a rival authority. We talked about this in Sunday school this morning. But when Jesus is going and the kingdom is coming with him, sometimes we can think that it is this evenly matched combat between good and evil. And we don't need to get that twisted. Jesus says here, no, 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 I am and have bound the strong man. I have rendered Satan helpless. So Satan, friends, does still have a very real presence in the world, and we don't need to minimize that. But what we can say very boldly is that Satan is on a leash and Jesus holds that leash. Satan does not have absolute power. Verse 30, Jesus says this. He says, whoever is not with me is against me and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Jesus, in his ministry, is confronting people with the reality of these two kingdoms. Although it's not a fair fight, although the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of Christ are not evenly matched, the kingdom of Satan is a reality nonetheless. And Jesus is saying, there is no middle ground in this conflict. There are two kingdoms. And every single person that has ever been and will ever be exists in one of these two domains. You either belong to the kingdom of darkness or you belong to the kingdom of Christ. And then Jesus spells out what it looks like to be with him in his kingdom. Again in verse 30, he says, Whoever is with me gathers, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Friends, to be with Jesus means that you and I actually become instrumental in gathering people to Jesus. To be against him means that we are unwilling to follow him in this mission and we leave people 
scattered and shepherdless, as easy prey for Satan. But when we come to Christ, just as Jesus is kicking in the door of Satan and binding the strong man and bringing people who were once the possession of Satan into his own kingdom, we now get to go out and participate in that mission. I was uh, getting to preach the same passage two days ago at Bibb County Correctional Facility to 100-plus brothers in Christ. Uh, and the thing is, they have no problem accepting this reality. If you tell them the kingdom of darkness is a reality, they go, no, duh. They live in a very dark place. Satan's work is very evident all around them. And the people who belong to Satan, they see the carnage that is the byproduct of their life. And if you tell them, hey, you were once the possession of Satan and Jesus has transferred you out of that kingdom into his own kingdom, they have no problem accepting that. They have been outed for their sins very publicly and they are being punished for those sins. They have no problem seeing the fact that before Christ, they made a mess of things. And so now when you go and open God's word to them, they are hanging on every single word. There is no pretense. There is no, I'm trying to act more put together than I am. They have no problem accepting this reality. I fear it's not as easy for us. We have enough resources to make us feel more comfortable and put together than we actually are. For most of us, our lives before Jesus publicly looked pretty good. But friends, don't see your life as being less than this reality, that you were in the same position as the demoniac, that you were saved in spite of you, transferred into a new kingdom, and it's as dramatic as a dead person being brought back to life, as dramatic as a demon-possessed man now being restored to his right mind and senses. And when that happens for us, we get recommissioned. We're not transferred into safety and left to wait until Jesus returns to make this kingdom a full reality, to consummate the kingdom. We get sent back out into enemy territory where God has people elect, chosen from before the foundation of the world just as he chose us. He sends us out with this message of the gospel. And by that same spirit... He breaks the chains and he calls people out of darkness into light. Friends, if you are with Christ, this is a picture of what you and I get to do. Fourth, not only is their accusation obscuring what is really happening, perhaps most terrifyingly of all, their accusation slanders or is unpardonable. It's unforgivable. Verse 31, Jesus says this, Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. In ministry, this is a question we get fairly often, is the unforgivable sin, what is that? And I don't know why, but people have just kind of supplied their own explanation for what the unforgivable sin is, whether it's adultery or suicide. I mean, I've heard all kinds of crazy ideas of what the unforgivable sin is. Friend, Jesus spells it out here, and it's the blasphemy against the Spirit. He said all other sins can be forgiven but this one. And the first, we need to step back and define what is blasphemy. Blasphemy is to slander or defame the character of God. Jesus says that if you slander the character of the Son of Man, 
it's forgivable. And I'm really glad that's the case. Because the number of times that you and I have slandered or impugned the character of God with our lives, with trivial jokes, misusing his name, we would all be unforgivable. If all blasphemy was unforgivable, we would be in big trouble. Think about Jesus' prayer from the cross for the people crucifying him. They slandered his character, his glory. And Jesus prays, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Think of Peter's forgiveness and recommissioning. Think of Saul who had blasphemed against the name of God. All of these people were redeemed and recommissioned. So it's not just any blasphemy that's unforgivable, but Jesus says the blasphemy of the Spirit. That whoever blasphemes against the Spirit will not be forgiven in this age or in the age to come. Now the question becomes, why is this blasphemy different? Why is this the one that gets placed in a special category? And when we come to a difficult verse like this that's hard to interpret, the first thing we want to do is we want to examine the context. See if there's something going on around this passage that might give some clarity to what Jesus is talking about here. And then we want to go and see, are there other verses that are more clear than this one? So we use what's clear to interpret what's not. Thankfully, here, I think the context provides the answer for us. If you think about the sin that the Pharisees were committing, the Pharisees were seeing a powerful demonstration of the Spirit's power. And they saw the Holy Spirit at work and refused to acknowledge it as being the work of God. They saw God's Spirit at work and attributed it to Satan. So this is what Numbers 15 would call like a high-handed sin. This isn't a flippant or an unintentional blasphemy, if there even is such a thing. This is a, an intentional, hardened refusal to acknowledge God at work. If you look back through Matthew, and we've been in Matthew for a while now, but we have seen as we've gone through Matthew that there has been a progression of sin on the part of the Pharisees especially over the past few chapters, that they grow increasingly hostile to Jesus and his mission. Their accusations get bolder. There's a hardening, a, a callousing that's happening. Friends, this is a really dangerous spot to be in. Because Hebrews speaks to this reality as well, that we can get to a place where we can see demonstrations of the Spirit's power, we can hear God clearly through His Word, we can see Him at work, and we can resist Him. We can begin to harden our hearts against God's Spirit and actually arrive at a place where you blaspheme the Spirit, where you get to a place where there's no spiritual sensitivity or vitality left. His warnings just kind of bounce off of you. Now, why is it unforgivable? Is it because Jesus' blood can't cover the sin? Is that what makes it unforgivable? The obvious answer there is no. Friends, the access that you and I have to forgiveness is by repenting. It's by acknowledging our sin, turning from it, and following Jesus again. And we don't do that one time. We do that thousands of times. We do that multiple times a day. The only way that we can do that is by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so if you and I, if we sense the conviction of the Spirit, and we begin to harden our hearts to His voice, 
then what we are doing is we are severing the one line that we have to repentance, the one avenue by which repentance comes. So willful refusal of his spirit. Now I want you to take some comfort in this for multiple reasons. One is because if you look back throughout the Old Testament especially, it is not a lineup of pretty put-together people. It is not a picture of folks that God picked out because of their goodness. They were a mess. And if you look back at Psalm 51, this is a psalm that King David wrote on the heels of committing murder and adultery. And he comes before the Lord humble, contrite, repentant. And while David still had consequences for his sin, he's forgiven. Still called a man after God's own heart. Any sin can be forgiven. There is nothing that places you outside the bounds of God's forgiving love. But if we continue to refuse the Spirit, we can harden our hearts. Now, if we bring the rest of Scripture to bear on this, there's another reason I think we should take comfort in this. And it's that I don't believe there has ever been a follower of Jesus commit this sin. Not one time. Now, why do I say that? In John chapter 17, Jesus says, All that the Father has given into my hand, I will lose none. Not one. Jesus gives warnings like this because the people that really belong to him, the people who are filled with his spirit, will hear these warnings and respond with a right fear and humility and a renewed repentance. The people who do not belong to God, the people who may outwardly look like a Christian, they will hear these warnings and ignore them and continue to be hardened. The next thing that I want you to take comfort from is that if you are sitting there worrying that you have committed this sin, that's actually the surest sign that you haven't committed this sin. We're talking about an intentional hardening of the heart, a refusing of God's spirit that desensitizes a person. So if you're hearing this warning and it causes you to kind of retune your ears a little bit, to listen up, that is the surest sign that you have not hardened your heart to God. And so even though there are plenty of reasons to be encouraged, we do need to be reminded of the full weight of this warning. In Psalm 95, the psalmist pleads with us, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Friends, today, if you hear the Spirit's conviction, his comfort, don't harden your hearts to God speaking by his Spirit through his word. The last thing that Jesus says to them is not only that their accusation is unforgivable, at least bordering on it, but the next thing that he says is, it, is that what they are saying actually exposes who they really are. In verse 33, Jesus says, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. A tree and its fruit are inseparable. An orange tree produces oranges. An apple tree produces apples. A healthy apple tree produces healthy apples. An unhealthy apple tree produces unhealthy apples. Jesus goes on, verse 34. He says, you brood of vipers, literally you offspring of serpents. How can you speak good when you are evil? 
For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Jesus says, it makes sense that you're saying evil things because you are evil. It makes sense you're saying blasphemous things because your heart is full of blasphemy. Verse 35 says, The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. The evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I find it so interesting that Jesus has been talking about his kingdom and its opposition to the kingdom of darkness. He's been talking about Satan. But when he comes to the core problem of the Pharisees, Jesus doesn't point to Satan and say that Satan is responsible for the Pharisees' unbelief, for their blasphemy. Jesus locates the problem inside them, in their hearts. This is an important thing for us to remember, is that God alone creates out of nothing. Satan cannot create sin out of nothing. He cannot produce thoughts and desires in us. He cannot cause actions to come forth out of us. Satan is only able to work with the raw materials we give him. The problem is first and foremost a problem in us. We are sin sick all the way to our core. Like the Pharisees, we reveal the condition of our hearts by the words and actions that spill out of it. So the idea that I can separate who I am in Christ from what I do and say, that compartmentalization we drift into, Jesus obliterates the compartments. He says, if you are in me, if you are abiding in me, you will bear good fruit. Good words will come out of you. Good actions will come out of you. Then in verses 36 and 37, he says this. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you'll be justified, and by your words you'll be condemned. Jesus says that our words, the things that we say, things that we type, those things will either declare us to be righteous or declare us to be wicked. And you may say, now hold on now, this is a church that says we're saved by grace through faith. I'm saved by what Jesus did, not by, or by, by what Jesus did, not by the things that I say. And that's absolutely true. We believe that wholeheartedly. But we also believe that the same grace that saves us also transforms us. And we do not want to peddle a cheap grace here that says you have been saved from the penalty of your sin, but not its power. You've been saved from eternal punishment, but now live how you want to. Now, we believe that Jesus teaches that the grace that saves freely is then going to come in and transform everything about us from one degree of glory to the next. And so our words will testify to the sincerity of our faith. Our actions will testify to the sincerity of our faith. So here's the call for you, and we'll close here. Notice what Jesus says back in verse 33. He says, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. I love that expression, just make the tree good and its fruit good. What happens if we evaluate the words, our thoughts, our actions, and we find our fruit to be rotten? What happens if we realize that maybe we've been resisting the voice of the Spirit? What happens if we realize that we've never been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light? Is Jesus saying here that I just need to start, that I need to start speaking better? 
making sure I don't say so many mean things, so many dirty cuss words. If I just change my speech, then I'm good. No. Friend, the problem is a bad tree can't produce good fruit, and a bad tree can't make itself good. What Jesus is revealing here is that the Pharisees, at their core, refused to acknowledge that Jesus was the only one who could actually transform bad trees into good trees. They couldn't humble themselves to see that, so they kept consigning themselves to behavioral modifications, stapling fruit on a dead tree. Jesus' invitation to you, whether you are following him now or not, or you've been following him 10 years or 10 days, it is the same call. The call is, come to me. I am the one who can take your bad fruit and make it good. I'm the one who can transform you to your core. And the promise for us is that as we come to him, again, not just once, but time after time after time, acknowledging our need to him, By the power of his spirit, he causes us to produce fruit. He changes our very nature. And over time, that fruit just matures and gets better and better because it looks more and more like him. Friends, don't try to change your nature by keeping rules. This morning, come and repent and find the power that can break the hands of the one that is too too strong for you and save you from the condition where you can't help yourself. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this message gives hope, but it also rubs against our pride because we very much like to think we can do it on our own. Lord, I pray that you would help us to hear the severity of your warning this morning that there are only two kingdoms we can belong to. And the only way we come to participate in your kingdom is by work that you have accomplished and by work that you then apply to our accounts by your spirit. Lord, I pray for every single one of us in this room that when we hear your voice, even now as we have just heard through the scriptures, we would not harden our hearts, but that we would come and yield ourselves to you in humility and repentance and that we would find you to be true and faithful that you are the one who will never cast out. You are never the one who will be surprised by our sin and say, this one is too dirty for me. You take what's broken, you clean it up, you make it new, and then you recommission it. Lord, thank you for your grace. We pray it in your name. Amen.